So with that, I want to jump into this passage. When I first looked at it, uh, I, I thought, this feels really specific to this time, to this moment. What is it that God would have for us? Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the Word of God is useful uh, for teaching, all of it. It's, it's God-breathed, and every, every bit of it is useful for us. And so we know now uh, that every part of God's Word has uh, meaning, intent, and purpose. And at Outward Church, we intentionally move through uh, a, a, a book of the Bible, verse by verse, uh, we, we won't steer around or skip over the parts that would be inconvenient to us. Uh, we, move, we move through each and every passage. But as I looked at this and started to unlock the treasure that's there, what I found, I'm going to kind of give you the main point that I'm going to try and make today. I want to I give you something to attach to uh, the, the problem, if you will, a problem that was evident here uh, for the people in this time period, in this day, is, is a problem that still exists for us today. And that is this. There is a type of religious activity that would have us missing out on an, an experience or a knowledge of Jesus. There is a way that we can approach uh, uh, religion, uh, the, the Bible, the church, uh, even the Christian life, that we would miss Christ himself, that we could be busy about this religious activity and completely miss Jesus. I want you to take a look at the very first verse uh, of our passage today, and it's in Luke 20. It starts in verse 41. I want to kind of explain what this is, what is being said, what's being referred to in Psalms 110, uh, and then I want to get into this application because we need a solution for this. If, if we're going to have a tendency to be about a type of religious activity that would cause us to miss Jesus altogether, I want to know what that is. I want to avoid that activity. I don't want to be uh, included in one of the woes that Jesus preaches in, in Matthew 23. So look at verse 41, our very first verse. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Okay, some context. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Those words are interchangeable. He's the hero, the one who was promised to come to fix all that is broken, to rescue. Uh, it says to set captives free, to restore sight to the blind, to fix all that is broken and undone in the world. This character, Jesus, this person, Jesus, was something that all of this uh, society, the Jewish nation, would have been waiting for because so much of the Old Testament was prophesying, was foretelling, was giving the future about one who would come, the one who would come that would fix all and restore all. The problem is they didn't see Jesus as that person, okay? So Jesus is pointing out, you know the scriptures, he's talking to scribes and Pharisees, these are people who know the scriptures well, in fact, 
uh, we'll get into a little bit about what scribes do. Scribes, uh, scribes, we can actually be thankful uh, to the scribes because they would have written down, because they didn't have copiers, they would have had, uh, uh, you know, on scrolls, the scriptures, they'd write and as a means of reproduction and preservation of scripture, they would look at one scroll and write on the other one. And I, I hear there's such scrutiny on the perfection that not even a, a single letter can be out of order or a punctuation can be out of order or they'll toss the scroll out. So when they, when they copy from one scroll onto a next, it must be with precision, exactly written as it was before so that a word that was written a couple thousand years prior would be the exact same message that's written on scrolls in that day. So the scribes then, in part, were to ensure that the message of God's word was preserved through time. We can thank them for that. And because of of that work, they were intimately familiar with every part of Scripture. Their work was Scripture. They knew the Scriptures in and out. The problem is what they used this information for. And Jesus gives a warning about them. We'll talk about that here in just a second. So... The commonly held, understood belief of that time is that the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus, well, Jesus isn't, they aren't knowing that he's the promised one, but the Messiah that is promised will be a son of David. David, David the, the kind of the first great king of Israel, uh, it was prophesied that the son of David or in David's lineage would the Messiah come through, okay? So the commonly held, understood belief was that the Messiah would be in the lineage of David, okay? And, and Jesus meets that mark uh, that, that, ex, that explains it in uh, the book of Matthew. They give the, the lineage and then shows that both Joseph and Mary come through the lineage of David. So he is uh, in that lineage, but lots of people would be in that lineage, right? The problem is that they held the belief that, that the Messiah would be a really great man, that he would be merely human. They, that, that's just what they assumed. They looked at Scripture, they looked at all of the prophecies, the foretelling that he would be a human. A person would come, a descendant of David. All that their minds could wrap around would be that he was going to be merely human. So Jesus poses this question to them. Uh, he, he says here in, in uh, 42, uh, well, I'm sorry, in 41 he says, but he said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? He's pointing now to Psalm 110, He's asking them a question. He's posing a question to these scribes. He says in in verse 42, For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is Psalm 110. This, unlike some other prophecies, was, was very clearly seen. You could see that this is, they are talking about the Messiah. Some of the, the messianic prophecies, some of the foretelling of, of, of Jesus in the Old Testament is a, little bit, is a little bit shrouded. 
We, we weren't able to really see it at that time. It, we didn't really even consider it to be a prophecy uh, you know, before Jesus actually arrived. But now that Jesus has come and lived and died uh, and, and rose again and, and ascended back to heaven with all of that benefit of, of hindsight, we can see all of the prophecies that were there, but not all of them were known. Psalm 110, however, was very, very clear actually using the words, uh, you know, Messiah talking about how he will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This would have been very well known. Interesting uh, fact, Psalm 110 is actually quoted more in the New Testament than any other uh, psalm, any other uh, section of, of the Old Testament. Psalm 110 is referred to uh, throughout the New Testament. So it's, it's very, very clear messianic Messiah prophecy uh, information. So they would be very familiar with this because all of their hope is in this coming Messiah. Their hope is in this rescuer, this hero that would come. And so when he quotes Psalm 110, it's a familiar passage. However, there's a part of this passage that they looked right over, ignored, explained away. And that is this phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, Literally, to my Adonai, Yahweh said. Anytime you see in the, in the, uh, it, throughout your Bible, all capitals, Lord, L-O-R-D, that is to replace the word, the unspeakable name of God, Yahweh. Some, some Bibles might actually put the Y-H-W-H in there. This is, this is the clear understanding, the Jewish God above all gods, creator God, Yahweh. So when he says, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, David, writing this psalm, says that to my Adonai, Yahweh said, meaning to my Lord, to the one that I uh, hold in high regard to call him Lord, God said. Okay? So talking about the Messiah, David refers to him as my Lord. And Jesus' question is this. If, if David's great, 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 great grandson would be the Messiah, why is David referring to him as my Lord? You see, it wouldn't have worked that way. See, David was, was grandfather in a patriarchal system. He would have been the one called my Lord by his grandson. You see, it wouldn't go the other direction. See, it's very clear that David knew exactly because the Spirit was on him in Matthew 20, in the Matthew 22 account of this. Uh, Jesus includes that phrase, that the Spirit was on David. So this is inspired Word of God. David is writing uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he's writing this psalm. He knows who he's talking about. In fact, they, they, they should have seen this because it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God, the creator God of all the universe, rules supreme over all, and at his right hand would be the most honored position. So we're talking about the one sitting at the right hand of the creator God Almighty. David recognized who he was talking about, that he was not merely a man. Because if it was just going to be David's lineage, he would not be referring to him as my Lord. 
And so Jesus says to the, to the scribes here, it, who, how can David say, uh, how, can they, how can you say that Christ is David's son? Uh, I actually uh, want to take a look at the Matthew 22 account as well. It won't be on your screens. Uh, Luke kind of gives a more brief bullet pointed uh, of this conversation. Uh, this conversation actually covers an entire uh, chapter in Matthew. Uh, but in Matthew 22, uh, it, it says, uh, Now while the Pharisees, this is verse 41, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, Who... What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Okay, so they know the answer, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's asking the question, David referred to the Messiah as Lord, but you're telling me, it's the son of David. This isn't working out, okay? So which one is it? How is it that David calls Jesus Lord or the Messiah Lord, but you say son? And in the Matthew 22 account, I actually really love the way, the way that it says it. Uh, in verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus was being attacked. One question after another after another, uh, being challenged in every single one of these, these attacks, these challenges on Jesus, he would, he, would, he would turn it and hand it right back to them. Some very profound question or statement this was their last question. No one asked them any more questions after that. They were made to feel very foolish, I think. Now, Jesus is also being quite provocative. This is uh, a couple of days before his crucifixion. Remember uh, a few weeks back I said Jesus' statement, his posture essentially is to come in and say, crown me or kill me. He comes into the temple courts and he starts teaching, he's not leaving. I'm going to keep proclaiming truth and one of two things is going to happen. You're going to crown me or you're going to kill me. He is making a stand and he is uh, saying very clearly in this passage, he's making the claim, I am the Messiah and I'm not merely man, I am God himself. I am the son of God, I'm God in the flesh. He's saying that plainly for anyone to hear. And man, did that make them angry. I want to uh, step away from the context of what was happening here. There has to be something here for us. There's the, all of Scripture is useful for us. Jesus takes uh, this, this moment to... To, to teach his disciples. He turns and he, he starts to teach his disciples in this moment. And, and, and I'd like to consider myself uh, to be a disciple of God. So anytime he's speaking to them, I want to hear that he's speaking to me and I want to I I hear what he has to say. 
and make a change in my life as a result. So one of the first things that I pointed or that I that I saw in this, this this will be my my first point that I'm kind of extrapolating from this section of scripture is, and I, I didn't set this up really well, but I but I I will. God will graciously ask questions which we do not have an answer to lead us to humility. You see, he asked them a question. I believe, as an invitation, that could have been an invitation to have a real conversation, right? It, it didn't have to be stump the chum, right? He asked them a question that he knew they might have struggled with, perhaps as an invitation. What would have happened if they would have said, you know, we actually don't know? Could you teach us? But they didn't do that. What kept them from doing that? It was their pride. They were the scribes. They had these long white robes. They had seats of honor. They uh, were greeted in the marketplace. When they came around, I was thinking about like how... um, like, I, I, I'm coaching my son's third and fourth grade basketball team or whatever, and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm teaching these kids how to play basketball, and they're listening to everything I have to say because they don't have a whole lot of experience. But if, like, Michael Jordan walked in while I'm coaching, like, I stop. I, I'm not saying anything else, right? Because Michael Jordan's here. Like, Mike, can you teach us? Like, what should we be doing? What should we, wor- what, what should we be wor- working on? Uh, that, that's what it would have been with the scribes, right? Like, these guys literally are, are, are writing Scripture all day for a living. When you had a question about an interpretation of the law, you would go to the scribes. And so they would, uh, they would, they would come in and they would say, uh, or they, they'd walk in the room and everyone would stop having conversations about Scripture because the experts here, right? And they loved that. They ate it up. Right? That was maybe their primary motivation. So he asked them a question that would, that had the opportunity to invite humility. They could have said, I don't know. And Jesus could have taught them. And we do the same thing, don't we? We potentially have a way of going to Scripture we all bring a lens as we go to Scripture and understand it. We, we think we know and understand what it, what it generally says, and we go to a Scripture and we say, I know what that means. Uh, you know, maybe we have these kind of arguments or debates about, you know, theological ideas. Maybe not everybody does. You know, I, I, I do sometimes, this kind of discussions. Uh, and, and I'll often find myself taking a position where it's like, no, I, I, know, what, I know what this says. Uh, with, like, there, there, isn't, there isn't any room or opportunity for me to say, um, you know, I, I could be wrong here. I might be wrong about what this says. How does God ask us questions we don't know the answer? We don't hear his voice audibly. But do we come across situations in our life uh, that, that we don't have an answer for? Um, this pandemic uh, has been, in, in my lifetime, one of the most uh, kind of 
um, it, 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 it kind of extracts hope. We, because we don't have any knowledge about what the future will be, we start to lose hope in, in what the future will be. We, we start to feel kind of out of control uh, about what the future would be. Uh, and so when we were to ask the question about what, what the future might look like, uh, there's, there's maybe uh, a, a question we don't necessarily have an answer to. When uh, my husband has uh, an, an affair, he cheats on me, and I, I don't have an answer for why that happened. Uh, my wife gets sick. I lose somebody I love. There's a question there that I don't have an answer to. And that could be an invitation. It could be an invitation for God to say, I'll teach you. I'll teach you about what this is, what this means. But what keeps us from that? We, we make an assumption. We make an assumption uh, about what it means. We say we know who God is. We say we know about what Scripture says. There's no room for us to... Uh, there, there's this song uh, that, that we used to sing. I guess it's out of the rotation, uh, but I, I, I really loved it. It's, there's the, in the chorus, it's, uh, it says, Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what's true. And there's this posture that says, um, you know, wisely we're guarded. We don't hear everything, believe everything uh, that, that, that we hear. You know, people don't get to just change our minds and change the way that we think. But there, but there should be one thing that certainly can just shape the way that I think and shape the way that I feel, and it is God and His Word. And there's something about this, the posture of this song that brings me to a place where I'm, my heart is wide open and everything that I thought that I knew and understood about who God is, uh, is, is, is on the table. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to have my mind changed. And I'm saying, here's my heart, Lord. Speak what's true. And I believe that's one of the things that, that, that could be seen here as you're walking through life is a question asked, whether by somebody or whether through a, a, an event in your life, is a question asked that you don't know the answer to. You have a couple of options at that point. You can pridefully assume the meaning of those things. You could ignore the meaning of those things. Uh, or you could ask in humility, what is the meaning of these things? They had that opportunity. They had the Messiah right in front of them. At any moment, uh, their eyes could have been opened, and they could have had an experience with the Creator God in that moment, but their pride kept them from it. And I'll just say, just kind of as an aside, when you're reading in the Bible and you come across something that, that doesn't fit with your understanding... It seems to be a contradiction. You're reading the Bible and you find a contradiction. This, this says something different than this. And you're trying to make sense of it. Understand that what, what, does, not need, what does not need to change is, is, 
is, is God's word. You don't have to get creative to try and make the two things fit together. What needs to change is your understanding. Because this is in God's word and this is in God's word, they're true. Both are true. And, and that they don't seem congruent is actually a problem with our minds, not a problem with God's word. So there's a way then we can approach scripture and religious activity that would have us missing the opportunity to experience Jesus uh, altogether. Pride certainly gets in the way. Uh, point, uh, and that is, that is point number two, uh, that this, this religious activity uh, actually brings us to a place to miss, miss Jesus altogether. When we approach thinking we, we know all there is to know, or, or when we approach God's word in this way, show me what it is I need to do so that I can do those things. I mean, the, the scribes outwardly had done everything that God's word said. That was, that was kind of one of the requirements. They had done everything that God's word has said. They were, on the outside, perfect. But Jesus points out the problem in their heart. I want, I want to look at the warning. Jesus gives a warning against, uh, about the scribes. So let's look at uh, verse 45 here in uh, Luke chapter 20. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, for the scribes, the result of um, all of this work that they had done in knowing the Scriptures very, very well uh, had the effect of making them very prideful. They liked to walk around in long robes. They'd like to be seen. Like, if I'm going to do all this work of becoming a scribe, I want to make sure everybody knows who I am and what I've done. So they wear the long white robes. Uh, they love greetings in the marketplace. That feels so, uh, so good for them to just uh, have the like, honor and respect and to sit at the table, uh, the place of honor in the feast. What God is saying is that, that their hearts are revealed. Their motivation is revealed. So it matters more the reason why they would do any of these things than it is what they've done in and of itself. You couldn't say that it's bad that you've memorized the entire Bible. Like You couldn't say that in and of itself is bad. But what was your heart motivation? That's what Jesus was pointing out. Uh, devouring widows' houses. Uh, that one is um, like, this, this is kind of like the... The abuse of leadership, spiritual abuse. This is uh, this is this is like among the most heinous uh, of of activities. But the idea that that they would go to a widow and say you would be doing God's will to give uh, to give all that you have to the church. 
right, to kind of take advantage of a widow who is, who is grieving and in need of comfort uh, and to uh, manipulate her in a way that's for self-gain of the temple and for the priest. He's, he's pointing that out probably because it was a regular activity or maybe there was somebody there who would be personally convicted from that. Uh, and they make prayers in long, with, with, with pretense, these pretentious prayers, Man, this is, this is a warning against me, uh, for sure, for you guys, against people like me. Watch my life. Hypocrisy is a really big problem. Am I up here saying one thing, and then my life looks something different? James 3 warns uh, that we shouldn't all desire to become teachers because we'll uh, be, be judged with greater scrutiny, with with. Uh, I can't remember the exact words, but he's saying that there's a greater condemnation for those who are in a position of leadership that are leading people in a way that they are not following through with in the, themselves, that hypocrisy. So I'm receiving that warning, but there's a warning there for us too. What does your service to God, your scripture reading, your tithing, your serving, what does that do? What does that activate in your heart? For what motivation? Uh, are you uh, doing those things? Those close to Jesus, I, I, I have just a couple of minutes left. I want to point out uh, in John, uh, John chapter 14, the, these are, this, is, this is God's inner, or Jesus' inner circle, okay? He is, in, in this chapter 14, Jesus is, is teaching at the Last Supper, okay? So we're talking about the 12 here. These are people who are walking with, closely following Jesus, and even they, even they miss the point. It's not just the scribes. That's why this message is really for us. They miss the point. They approach following Jesus with the question, what do I need to do? And isn't that what we do? We say, what, 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 do I, what do I need to do? You might even be sitting here right now saying, okay, well, what do I need to do? If I leave here what should I start doing right now? In John, in John chapter 14, the same question is, is asked. It says, uh, I'm going to start in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would, I've, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am going, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going, okay? But look at what Thomas asks. Love Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? He's asking, you need to give us some directions. How do we get there? That's the question we ask. What do I need to do? Tell me what's my part. Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him and have seen him. Or from now on, you do know him and have seen him. My, my third point is the solution here. The solution has to be, it, 
we could look at this and say, I just need to read my Bible more closely. I need to read my Bible more. For some of us, we need to start reading our Bibles. Uh, because like, I don't want to miss those tiny details and miss Jesus. The application can't be for you to leave here and just read your Bibles more or read your Bibles more closely because the greatest Bible readers of all time missed Jesus sitting right in front of them. Okay? So there's a way we can go to our Bible that we would miss Jesus altogether. Thomas walking with Jesus misunderstood. He said, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, I'm the way. In some ways, this is like so mysterious for us. Like this should bring us to a place of kind of humility where we'd say, I don't get it. Okay, so, so Jesus is the way. So I'm, go, I, I'm going through Jesus. So, so he's the way. So what do I do? Right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't quite satisfy our desire of what do I need to do? And Jesus does this unapologetically. He wants you to see that the way to the Father is through him. It is our eyes fixed on him. This is the transforming work. As we go to God's word, it has to be through Jerusalem, as Kent Hughes says. It has to be looking for Jesus. He's there throughout the Old Testament. He's there in person, metaphorically, and prophesied. Throughout the New Testament, it's all about Jesus. We have to be finding Jesus, not what does he want us to do, but who is he? Remember Zacchaeus, he climbed up in a tree to see who Jesus was, and he had an encounter with Jesus. It changed him forever. So as we are uh, coming to church, as we are spending time with each other, serving each other, as we are giving to the church, as we are uh, getting into God's word, as we would ever even approach this idea of, of holiness and removing sin from our lives, it has to be with our eyes on Jesus because there's a way of doing this that, that we would miss him and he's standing right in front of our face though we're doing everything the Bible says, we've missed Jesus and there's a harsh judgment for us because what he's asking is that those who are weary and heavy laden would come to him. Jesus' instruction was that we would abide in him and he in us. It is with a focus on Jesus that we should be doing any of these things. And with that, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward because we're going to keep our eyes on Jesus even at the close of this message. We're going to, we're going to open our hearts to God's word, his instruction for us, and we're going to allow him to speak what's true. As we put our eyes uh, onto Jesus, we do that each week by remembering his sacrifice. So right where you are, you can uh, stand up and come and grab a cracker and a juice uh, and go back to your chair. We'll take the uh, elements together.